It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each year, the Aspen Institute holds its annual Aspen Ideas Festival. Hundreds of inspired and provocative speakers and thousands of participants descend on the Institute's 40-acre campus, tucked near towering mountain peaks in Aspen, Colorado. We want you to be part of the festival, so we're featuring fascinating conversations with festival speakers throughout the event. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show produced by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. The Aspen Ideas Festival is jam-packed with on-stage discussions touching on topics such as climate change, U.S. and world politics, psychology, technology, and health. For our series, we've asked a group of journalists to step off the stage and get behind the mic. These podcast takeover hosts handpicked festival speakers for discussions on a myriad of topics. Today's takeover host is Susan Page. She serves as Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. She has covered six White House administrations, 10 presidential elections, and interviewed nine past presidents. Here's Page. I'm Susan Page of USA Today, the takeover host for Aspen Ideas to Go here at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Okay, what do a Tony Award-winning theatrical producer, a neuroscientist who specializes in moral cognition, and an innovator in education have in common? Well, one answer is none of them are from Washington. And since the people who are from Washington don't seem to be having a lot of success in fixing what ails the Capitol, we thought we'd turn to some non-traditional sources for advice. We're joined by Liz Dozier, founder of Chicago Beyond, Jeffrey Seller, the Tony Award-winning producer of Rent in Hamilton, and Joshua Green, a neuroscientist and director of Harvard's Moral Cognition Lab. I'm not 100% sure what moral cognition is, but I think it's probably something we could use more of. So let me start by asking you, you don't live in Washington. How does Washington look to you? Do you think Washington is working pretty well? Liz, what do you think? Well, it seems to be a little bit dysfunctional at the moment. Uh, It seems to be very chaotic. I often like uh, just bring it back to what's happening in our communities and how it impacts what's happening in Washington is impacting our communities. There's a lot to be, I think, um, concerned about, and there's a lot that will ultimately happen that will impact um, folks who are on the ground, and I think it's making a lot of people um, nervous. Does it make you nervous? Absolutely. When I think about health care and 22 million Americans on having health care and people not being able to be in nursing homes or education, I mean, the, the impact of what's happening there will ripple across our country for decades to come. You know, we have a new USA Today poll coming out, so I'll give you a scoop on it. We asked people various reactions to Washington, how they felt like things were going, and the number one reaction that people felt across the country was alarmed. Josh, how does it look to you? Do you think Washington's working about like it should? Well, I I think it's, in a sense, highly dysfunctional and also highly functional, depending on what you think the function is. So if you think the function is to produce policy that produces good results for the American people and perhaps the world more broadly, then it is increasingly highly dysfunctional. If you view what politicians are trying to do is stay in office given their constraints and given the demands of their constituencies, then I actually think that at least in the short term, a lot of people are, are, are making savvy decisions, but often decisions that are to the detriment of a greater good. Well, how would you, which, which option would you prefer? Well, of course, uh, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't put it that way if, I, if, 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 if it wasn't the first answer. Yeah. Um, yes, of course, I would like to see policies that make us healthier and better educated and help people from uh, different cultures and, 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 and economic groups get along with each other and, and, and thrive. Um, but 
you have to work within the system we've got. And so understanding the incentives that people have and trying to work with them or around them is essential if we're going to try to solve the problems. You know, Jeffrey, you have this interesting perspective because you have been involved in the, in the creation of this remarkable uh, uh, show, Hamilton, now not just in New York, but in other, being performed in other cities as well. And I wonder if that gives you any kind of insight in how things were supposed to work from that era, from Hamilton's era, and how they are working now. I think what I learned in the process of developing Hamilton over the last six years is that Washington, um, let's go back another step. If you look at the founding of our country, it was always dysfunctional. And political actors were, going back to our earliest days, vicious toward one another and often did everything in their power to tear down their opponents. So in many ways, one could say that the same exact dynamic is happening right now. However, if you look at where we are standing here today, it's obvious that the Republicans are no happier with where they are than the Democrats are with where they are. So arguably, nobody is getting what they want out of Washington right now. You come from very different perspectives. Different, you live in different cities, in, in Boston and in, in Chicago and in New York, and are in different fields. Is there anything in your field, in your experience, that is analogous to what you see as dysfunctional in Washington now? Is there anything when you were a teacher, for instance, Liz, in a classroom where you thought, where you look at Washington now and think, this is a situation I faced in, in trying to lead a high school and trying to teach high school students? Um, I think the fact that it's really complex. <laughs> Oftentimes I think education gets boiled down into like this simple, um, you know, anyone can teach or that you know, educating kids is very simple and I think that just as, as complex as Washington is, is as complex as a classroom or a school is or a school district and really making um, the best decision re requires um, really thoughtful, thoughtful leadership and being willing to make sacrifices to get the job done. Is, it, is there any analogy to a situation that's gone wrong in a school and uh, that, that just seems to you like there might be a lesson there somewhere for Washington? I mean, the one that strikes me most is I think about um, when I first came to the school where I was principal Finger High School, it was uh, extremely chaotic and it was uh, a lot of gang violence, a lot of uh, just the things you wouldn't want to see happen. There were 300 arrests inside of the school building my first year there. Not a good situation. However, um, the way forward from that was not to arrest more people or to incarcerate more people in the school, although that's what had been previously done, but it was rather thinking about how do we build bridges and how do we begin to get young people to talk to one another to move the ball forward. And ultimately, it turned out we became like a, a leader in the district in restorative justice, increased you know, high school graduation rates and kids going off to college. But it was through that connection, that humanness, um, that I think all that was able to take place. So putting on a Broadway show, I'm sure it's totally smooth sailing from start to end. Is there experience you've had in doing that that kind of looks like the, the gridlock and the failure to cooperate and the unwillingness to, to do some long-term thinking that kind of defines Washington in many ways today? Uh, I, I think about two things. One is that when a group of people decide to put on a show, we have deadlines and we have to meet them. We don't have a choice but to deliver the show on the day we said we were going to deliver it because there is going to be an audience there who paid for their tickets. And um, when I think about Washington, 
I think that there in many ways are no consequences. The only consequence, of course, is losing one's job. And we know that there are a number of institutional barriers to losing one's job. Um, we know that being an incumbent um, gives a uh, politician a better than 50% chance of winning just because they're an incumbent. And um, I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking about the nature of ticket. You know, if we don't do our job well, then we don't get ticket buyers to come and sit in our seats, and we close. And I've had this fantasy that if they don't do their jobs well, we could withhold our taxes. <laughs> because ultimately, there aren't enough incentives to, quote-unquote, do their jobs well. There seem to almost, you know, there are, the consequences are nil. You know, I think some taxpayers would think that they were the people who had bought a ticket to this show with the expect expectation they would show up and the lawmakers would have done their mm -hmm. job, but they keep showing up and the curtain stays closed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we see survey after survey that shows that um, citizens have a very low opinion of the Congress and then they re-elect their congressman every two years. So there seems to be a fissure between what they say they feel about this thing called Washington and their local representative that they like. And, um, and I also think that to what Liz was saying about the sense of being alarmed with what's going on in Washington, I think we're in a very unique place right now because I think that if you look back over the last 20 or 30 years, I think a lot of American citizens go through their lives on a day-to-day -day basis and they don't feel like there is a relationship between what goes on in their daily lives, trying to make a living, getting their children to school, getting them to their after-school activities, trying to maintain a marriage, a relationship, trying to go out to dinner once a week, going bowling or playing cards or going on vacation, and what goes on in Washington. And there is a big disconnect. And I think that what we're seeing right now is that, for example, if the Republicans pass their health bill, like it or not like it, um, people are going to feel that connection mm -hmm. very deeply, mm -hmm. very quickly. Josh, what, what do you think? Well, so in addition to being a, a, a researcher on human decision making, I'm also a big Hamilton fan. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I see you know, connections over and over again between what's depicted in the show and our understanding of moral psychology. I mean, Hamilton is essentially a tragedy. And what makes something a tragedy as opposed to just a bad thing that happened is the sense that it could have been much better. It could have been much better for everybody, right? That both Burr and Hamilton could have been much better off, uh, especially Hamilton, uh, the, the, the way things ended, right? And this is the fundamental problem of morality is really solving that prisoner's dilemma, the tragedy of the commons. How can we act in ways so that we both end up pretty well off instead of one person, everyone ending up poorly off because we're all at, e at each other's throats? And I think one of the lessons of the musical is that people are not acting in isolation. Uh, you know, you, 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 you as, as Washington says, you have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. That's not completely true. You do have some control, but you have limited control and you're very much constrained by what's going on around you. Why couldn't Burr and Hamilton just say, you know what, dueling is stupid. Let's try to work this out mm -hmm. some other way. And the problem is because they have their honor and they have their constituencies behind them and they have a social system that says, if you, if, if, if you don't, 
engage in this duel, then your honor is gone and, 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 and you've lost. And it's a sign that we've made a lot of progress that we don't engage in literal dueling anymore. That this is, you know, I, I don't want to be completely pessimistic. I think that we've made a lot of progress in eliminating the aspects of our social structures that are truly destructive and, 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 and counterproductive. Uh, can uh, I just interrupt to say, yeah. I'm imagining what it would be like yeah. if Mitch McConnell challenged <laughs> yeah. Chuck Schumer right. to a duel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're right. Well, in a sense, that's what they're doing. But, exactly. but, but, but the irony now is instead of you know, one person fires and one person fall, falls over, they now both have the opportunity to fire at each other endlessly and both win and, and, and simultaneously win and lose with their respective consti consti uh, constituencies. And that, you know, we're, we're, they're living in separate informational worlds. I mean, you, you mentioned the, the, the health care bill. The Congressional Budget Office says this is going to throw two min two, two, uh, 22 million people, leave them without health care. My guess is that the Republican strategy, if they're going to try to push this forward, is they know what's going to happen, and they're going to blame the Democrats. And we're just going to have two different worlds, uh, one in which people on the Democratic side blame the bill that actually caused, caused, caused the problem, and the other in which it's somehow all Hillary Clinton or Nancy Pelosi's or uh, Barack Obama's fault. So what yeah. can you do so that they don't have a duel? So that they yeah. say, dueling is stupid. Why yeah. don't we get together and work it out? Yeah. I think it's... It is a really, really hard problem because it ultimately comes down to what are the voters demanding. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the voters, informing their own opinions and informing their attitudes, they're not trying to actually directly solve the global problem. In some sense, they're solving a local social problem. And this is a point that's made beautifully by, by Dan Kahan, law professor at, at uh, Yale Law School, that you know, take the case of global warming. 15 years ago, there wasn't much disagreement about whether or not global warming climate change was being caused by human activities on either side of the aisle. And then it became a politicized issue. And it stopped being about what's going on in the Earth's atmosphere and started being about what's going on at my local barbecue. That is, do I want to be the one person in my cultural circle who's saying, no, actually, I believe that climate change is real when everybody else standing around the coals doesn't, or vice versa at the, at the Blue State uh, barbecue. If you view people as trying to solve a local social problem, trying to have the attitudes and beliefs that help them get along with the people in their local tribe, then it makes a lot of sense in terms of they're actually effectively solving their local social problem, but the results could be disastrous at, at, at the global level. And so I think the, the really hard challenge, and I don't think there's a simple answer, it's just going to be laborious work of Built, building connections, building bridges to people, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, 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 a, in a local kind of way, and you know, get, getting getting people past the the, the the polarization that has really defined the, the political process. But you know, these days the polarization, one effect of the polarization politics is that everything is seen through your partisan lens. So yeah. if you're a conservative Republican, you're much more likely to say climate change isn't real. If you're a Democrat these days, nine of 10 Democrats say the press has a watchdog role to hold government officials to account. Only about four in 10 Republicans now hold that view. I mean, it, it's it, it, on the economy. We but know can, I, can I slow you down? Yes. Because that's not an apples to apples comparison. The fact that um, a majority of Republicans don't believe in climate change is just not true. I mean, it's true that they no. believe it, right. but no. they're not agreeing to a baseline set of facts. Yep. And, and until we can agree on a base, it would be um, reasonable if the Republicans said, I know there's climate change and it's not our problem. 
we're going to leave that problem to our grandchildren. What I believe is that what is most important right now is that we um, make carbon fuel available at the lowest possible price to the greatest number of people, and that's what will be good for our community, our economy, and our society, and we will let other people solve that problem. That would be a reasonable position, but that's not the position. The position is it's not true, and the truth of it is, is it is as true as evolution, and to argue with that is just a lie. And I, and, and I want to ask Josh where, how you analyze this from your perspective as a psychologist who specializes in morality. Well, I, I, I agree with, with, with the things that you said. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I think that it is a very difficult problem. I mean, very few people form their beliefs based on kind of thorough analysis of the evidence. And in a sense, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, take something elementary. I believe that Antarctica exists. I've never been there. I, I'm, I'm taking it on testimony. In some sense, I'm taking it on faith, right? Now, this isn't a controversial issue <laughs> that, that, that this continent at the bottom of the world exists, right? So, we, you know, it's kind of funny to even talk about it that way. But mo most of the things we believe about important unobservable facts or not directly observable facts about the world, we... we, we we form our beliefs based on our social networks, right? And so how, and the, the question you're asking is, if one group really has it right, and I agree with you, I think that when it comes to climate change and a lot of other things, one group really has it right, and the other group really is just ill-informed, how, how, how do you fix that? It, it is unfortunately not just a matter of getting the truth out in front of people. Uh, it's not just a matter of better education. It's really a matter of building social bridges uh, and, and, and repairing social damage. And I, I, I wish there was a good policy solution to that. And maybe there are some that I and other, other people who think about these things haven't, haven't thought of. But uh, it's, it's, it's ultimately going to be a, a hard slog, you know, one personal relationship at a time, I think, to try to bring people back into the same social world, which is necessary for bringing people back into the same factual world. I've been thinking a lot about this, like the, the building of bridges and how do you move, like the, how do you move the truth forward? And I think it, it has become increasingly complex when you think about even like Facebook feeds and how the algorithm works and how people are seeing more and more of their own ideas reinforced. And like, how do we, how, how do you create those bridges when people are operating in these bubbles that are like ever thickening? I'd be curious to know what the group thinks about that. Because you do have a situation to pick up on something that you said that Daniel Patrick Moynihan, that the New York Senator used to say, you're entitled to your own opinion, you're not entitled to your own set of facts. And that is a precept that I think it no longer applies. On an issue like climate change, climate change deniers believe they're entitled to their own set of facts as well as their own opinion. So how do you move back from that? How do you so change there, that? There has been some interesting psychological research that maybe gives hints about uh, 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 about the the way forward, right? So um, uh, I'm trying to remember the first author's name, Philip Fernbach and and Stephen Sloman, who I believe also have have a book about a lot of these things that, that came out recently. Have done research where they try this technique of taking someone who disagrees with you and asking them to explain some of the facts behind their position. Say, oh, so you, you're Obamacare, you're not a fan? Yeah, no, I hate it. How does it work? 
ask them to just explain uh, uh, just you know how, 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 how does it work so there are subsidies and and, 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 and tax breaks and how, what are the mechanics of it and just the and then people don't know <laughs> and just that that just being forced to just in a plain calm way just describe the facts that would seem to be essential for your having formed an opinion you know what it does is, is it reminds people okay I actually don't really understand this very well and I'm kind of taking this on faith and that doesn't necessarily make them change their opinion on the spot but it, it, their research shows that it can soften people up a little bit and make them less extreme um, and so maybe there are ways to sort of spread some of these ideas these non-obvious tech, tech techniques for you know, instead of confronting people head on, you're wrong and here's why, and you're ruining the world, say, oh, interesting. Tell me how that works, right? Um, that's just you know, one example maybe of how the things we've learned from psychology can help us move forward if, if only in baby steps. Or instead of just not having any conversation at all, which yeah. is probably the more common thing. What about, what about educators? What about the, the school system or the way we raise our children? Because you, you, maybe we'll make baby steps with the current crowd in power, but I wonder, are there th is, is there an obligation for some kind of approach in education that would help us have a more civil discussion with an engaged citizenry to address the big problems that we all agree we face? I think it all boils down to exposure for a lot of our young people as we think about those in the most marginalized communities in our country to the to the wealthiest communities. I think it all boils down to interaction and again I think it goes back to how do we not create the us versus them narrative? How do we um, keep ourselves grounded not in alternative facts but real facts and I think that requires um, interaction and I think because of the bubbles like thickening that becomes harder and harder so it becomes incumbent upon both parents and educators to um, break down those walls and to increase exposure points and to um, to set that stage for their children. What's the hardest thing? What's the hardest thing to make that happen? I think. People, I, I, I think especially in the last 10 to 20 years, like we've become so siloed. We don't interact with people who are not in our own social, you know, stratosphere, who are not in our same economic brackets by and large. I think we've become such a, 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 a microcosm of, of, of folks that look and act just like us and have the same interests of us. And so it's hard to break out of that because it's, it's not the norm. Hey, Jeffrey, what about the arts? Is there anything that... Uh, that theater, music, dance, is there anything that would kind of contribute to a society that works better in terms of, in terms of making just our democracy work better? I think the arts have an integral role to play in both reflecting our society, reflecting our political culture, um, and perhaps um, showing paths to move forward. And I think that we see that um, across the spectrum, whether that be in TV shows like The West Wing or um, uh, which showed one way or, uh, you know, a more um, cautionary tale uh, like um, the Kevin Spacey show that's on right now. I, I'm forgetting the name of it, but someone help me. House of Cards. House of Cards. House of Cards. Yes, um, or a show like Hamilton that both shows how difficult it is to... Um, make legislation, how difficult it is to um, bring disparate political actors together to form an agreement, whether that agreement is um, the Declaration of Independence, which of course is not covered by our show, but the um, passing of the U.S. Constitution, which is covered by our show, and then um, uh, something as simple as uh, Hamilton's Treasury Act, which is of course um, 
uh, sung about in the room where it happens in the second act of the show. We see what kinds of deals he needs to make to get his uh, treasury plan through. I, I think that the arts can affect people um, in a visceral way that may provide um, uh, a greater action on the other end. So it's a dark topic in some ways because I think for those of us who do live in Washington, it's it's uh, uh, it's like a system at war with itself. So we're, we're just about out of time. I want each of you to tell me if you can think of something, something that you think is a really bright spot, something that encourages you when you think about making the American democratic experience uh, and experiment work better. And maybe, Liz, start with you. Um, I would say what gives me the most hope as I look out across what's happening over the past uh, 18 months or so is the, pack, the fact that people are starting to get more engaged. I think especially those um, in, in the millennial category. Like for, for whatever your political views are, you can look out and you can really clearly see like people, there's a heightened awareness of what Jeffrey was talking about, of how what happens in Washington actually like connects to my daily life. And I cannot sit passively by and just let something happen. I have to. I have to mobilize. I have to vote. I have to dot 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 fill in the blank. And I think that's hopeful because I think with that and with action behind it keeps our democracy alive. Now that women's march the day after the inauguration mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. pretty amazing. Joshua Green, director of Harvard's Moral Cognition Lab, tell me something that gives you hope. Well, so the first thing I was going to say is, is the same as was just said, that the, the increased engagement that we're seeing now gives me hope for the future. I look at some things, uh, you know, the, 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 the changes, for example, in people's attitudes towards marriage equality. Uh, that has been an enormous change that has happened very quickly. It's probably the biggest single change that I've seen in, in, in my lifetime. I think there are some special features of it that made it especially likely to change uh, compared to other issues of racial divisions and things like that. But even so, the fact that we can make such massive progress on, on, on an issue that really hits people in the gut so strongly on, on, on both sides is a sign that you know, we, 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 we can move forward when the will is there. Yeah. And I think there's more will being marshaled on other issues. You know, that's been quite a revolution in, in the space of about a decade. So Jeffrey Seller, we're going to give you the, the last word, the Tony Award winning producer of Rent and Hamilton. Is there something that makes you optimistic? Um, I, I could speak globally and tell you that when I get frustrated um, by our political system, when I get scared by global warming, um, when I get enraged by politicians who are taking actions that I find to be um, deplorable, I also look and I say, here I am right now in this world. Um, I am a gay man who is in a relationship and has a 13-year-old child and a 14-year-old child both of whom thrive, and I know I couldn't be alive at any other time in history and have the life that I am having right now. So therefore, I will continue to deal with all of those fears, frustrations, and challenges that are beset upon us with this hope that um, human ingenuity is going to continue to um, provide a path forward um, that will continue to nurture our civilization. I'm Susan Page, and thank you for joining us on Aspen Ideas to Go. You've been listening to our podcast takeover series at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, or find us on SiriusXM's Insight Channel. 
Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and me. Audio engineering by Corby Anderson and SiriusXM. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for joining me.